All right, turn with me in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. Turn with me to two places. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And one book over, the book of John. John chapter 20. So Luke chapter 23. And John chapter 20. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, back to back. And we'll pick it up first in Luke's Gospel. This is Jesus on the day of the crucifixion. We want to start there. When I was uh, living in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, we moved here in 2003. But before that, we had spent about seven years in Charlotte. And uh, Pastor Dane, we, had, we were at Central Church for a few years. And then we, um, and I was uh, serving over at um, Calvary Chapel, Charlotte there. And Dane would always say, you cannot know how good the good news is until you've known how bad the bad news is. And the cross represents how bad the condition of mankind really is. The brutality of the cross represents the gravity of sin. So pick it up with me uh, on the day of the crucifixion. Luke chapter 23, verse 32. There were also two others, criminals led with him out to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, and boy, do we wish we could have this same mindset more often, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written above him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that we are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. In another passage it says, Certainly this was the Son of God. Turn over with me to John chapter 20. Now, aren't you glad the story does not end there? If it ends there, we're on a lot of trouble. John chapter 20, so you have, that was in Luke's gospel, over to John 
chapter 20, starting verse 1. Now the, verse, now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that being John, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooped, looking down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been wrapped around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. Then in verse 8 and 9, they go back. They all go back into the city. But Mary Magdalene either stays or comes back briefly after that and lingers. Look at verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? The second time she's like, Has everyone asked me this today? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, please tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Teacher, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you that the ending of this story is the beginning of salvation. That the ending of this story is the opening to eternal life. That the ending, ending of this story is newness of life. And Jesus, you are resurrected, but you promise that those that believe in you are part of your resurrection. And Lord, I pray that as we look at this today, if there's even one that does not know you as the risen Savior, today would be that day. That those of us that know you, Lord, would leave this place loving you more than when we came in because you draw us even closer and closer and closer and closer as your return is getting closer. And we ask, Lord, I ask, Lord, for your anointing, your help, your strength. Uh, Lord, remove me from the equation that each of us might hear from you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We looked last week, and I know that some of you are here for the first time today, or maybe you're joining online and you have not been part of our recent services, but last week we looked at the triumphant entrance of Jesus at the start of 
what we now refer to as the Holy Week or the Passion Week. But from a scriptural and a historical perspective, it was the Passover week. It was the week of Passover. And we saw in the text from last week, we were reading from Matthew's Gospel, how Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt, a young donkey that had never been ridden. And by the time he arrived there on the Sunday previous, which we now call Palm Sunday, they didn't call it Palm Sunday, it was the beginning of Passover week, Thousands upon thousands of people were lining the street like a parade. Pieces of clothing laid on the road. And palm branches like a leafy fabric carpet on the road all the way down the Mount of Olives into the temple and into the city through the, city, uh, the, through the temple gate. And you had voices rejoicing and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the Son of David! Actually, Luke's gospel tells us that even as Jesus was descending, receiving all that praise and adulation, it said he wept over the city. He saw the real hearts. He can see when people are laughing and have a good time, but still dead in their trespasses and sin. Oh, how the shouting would change in less than a week. Jesus entered Jerusalem that first day a week ago as the Passover lamb. But the crowds, they saw him as the would-be deliverer and the king that would take the throne of David. Even among his disciples, and even his own mother Mary, who Mary, if you recall, had been told when Jesus was a baby, yes, a sword will pierce even through your own soul. Mary was told as a baby that Jesus was going to suffer. It was going to cause her to suffer. But none of them, not Mary, not the disciples, none of them understood how this week was going to go. They had been to many Passover weeks. They didn't know how this one was going to go. He had told the disciples on several occasions that he would be crucified and he would rise again on the third day. He had told them this on more than a few occasions. But none of it ever made sense to them. It all went over their heads. Perhaps they thought it was a parable. At any rate, only Jesus, among the throngs of praising voices, the elated and excited multitudes, and the astounded disciples who had to be thinking, with Jesus coming in and receiving all this praise and adulation, they had to be thinking, this is going to be a great week. And they were right. It was going to be a great week. A miraculous week with a miraculous ending but not the week they were thinking. It was not going to go the way that anyone other than Jesus could have expected, because he knew exactly how the week was going to go. And nobody but Jesus could complete this week. Only Jesus could bring this week to completion. If you're taking notes, you see the title again this morning, The Risen Savior, and praise God that Jesus is risen. Otherwise, I would not be doing this today. I can promise you that. And our meeting to worship here today would serve no purpose. You might as well be golfing or reading the paper or watching TV or scrolling your phone. Now, you've done enough of that this week. I'm sure of it, right? But, but he is risen. 
He is risen, and our worship is not in vain, but it's in hope and joy. And I want to pick up with where I left off from last week to tell the rest of the story, the rest of the week. Now, this isn't a Hollywood production. I'm just going to tell the story. I'm just going to tell the story. And the story is actually the gospel. This story is the gospel. And this story is the historical record of the salvation that was secured by the Lamb of God, Jesus, the Savior of the world. As the well-known hymn states, the third line of the first stanza, I love to tell the story because I know tis true. It goes on in the same hymn to say, I love to tell the story for some have never heard. By the way, young people, this is what worship used to look like. That's a, that's a hymn book. <laughs> Yellow pages, hymn book, those are things that you just don't see anymore. It used to be you pull that out of the back and that was the worship service. But that line is some that I've never heard. If there's even one person, even one person, I know in the first service we had someone who was really, God is speaking, getting close to getting saved. But if there's even one person that's never heard the story, this is for you more than for all the rest of us. But it's for all of us as well. As I mentioned last week, the entire 33-year life of Jesus and his previous three-year ministry, so the last three of those 33 years, had been leading up to this climactic week, this crescendo. Everything had been leading up to this week. So as Jesus entered back on that triumphant Sunday at the start of the week, he goes immediately down the Mount of Olives. I took this picture when it is real. I think I've taken it both times I've been there. Uh, we're at this vantage point, he's coming down the road that comes down the Mount of Olives, right into the temple, which was a magnificent structure. It, it would dwarf the landscape. It was much larger than the Dome of the Rock. It was a massive structure that rose many stories up, and the temple itself was white marble, and everything was white limestone, and it would shine from miles. And Jesus is coming down into this massive structure, into its glory, into its activity, and even into the marketplace that was there. But that night, that first Palm Sunday when he comes in, he leaves and goes back that evening to Bethany, which is two miles outside of Jerusalem, to the town of Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead, Mary and Martha. And he spends the night there. Coming back the following morning, Jesus sees a fig tree with no fruit on it, and he curses it. The tree represented the nation of Israel that was not bearing the fruit of repentance, that did not have genuine faith, and was not right, rightly representing God. He enters the temple that same morning, after cursing the fig tree, he enters the temple, and he does something to the shock of many. He flips all the tables that have money changing on it, and he drives out the money changers, it says he cleanses the temple. And quoting from both Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jesus says these words. He said, What God intended to be a house of prayer 
you have made it into a den of thieves. Let me tell you here, if you're listening online here, Jesus does not love religion. He loves people that come to know him as Lord and Savior. Organized religion, you know, I don't like organized religion, in a sense, neither does God. Especially when it becomes turned into a money for show. Or a show for money, either way. He cleansed the temple, if you recall, he cleansed the temple in his first year of ministry. The first year he went of the three-year ministry, he cleansed the temple. Now he cleanses it a second time in his third and final year of ministry. And the last time he will be in Jerusalem until he comes again to rule the world. The leaders had wanted him dead ever since that first time he drove the money changers out. And so, he does it again. He returns that night to Bethany again. The following morning, as he's coming back to Jerusalem, the disciples are walking with him. They're astounded to see the fig tree he cursed the day before is now dead as a doornail. It had died what it would take years. It shriveled and died in one night. The disciples see it. And they marvel that he had cursed it the day before and the tree is completely dead. As Jesus enters the temple that morning, and you can see the temple structure, how large it is compared to, this is a scale drawn, you can see how large the temple is compared to, let's say, all the houses that are around it, even other, even other buildings. It just dwarfed the landscape. And there, that whole area is called the Temple Mount. But as Jesus enters the temple, he's coming down the Mount of Olives, which is that little red line, which is the road that leads not only up to the Mount of Olives, but around to Bethany, all the way back down to Jericho. As he enters, it simultaneously, his entrance simultaneously coincides with the beginning of the inspection. This day begins the inspection of all the Passover lambs that are going to be sacrificed for all the families and all the Jewish pilgrims that are there for the Passover feast. This, is, this begins the three-day period where every single Passover lamb has to be inspected for no blemishes, cannot have even a tiny spot, or it is ruled unusable. This begins Jesus's, unbeknownst to everybody else, his three-day inspection as the Passover lamb. Unbeknownst to his accusers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, the scribes, they will then press him and try and find a flaw in him but they find him to be flawless and actually he flusters them with every answer that he gives them. Near the end of the day, that same day, he's up on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives again, you can see the two green arrows, all that stretch there is the Mount of Olives. It ascends up from the city. The city's there on the elevated platform, the Kidron Valley in between the Mount of Olives there. He's sitting up on the Mount of Olives looking back towards the temple. And the disciples, they begin to marvel. No matter how many times they've seen the temple, they marvel at it. And it's grander. And Jesus tells them of its coming destruction. And I, I, I'm reminded the first time I ever went to New York City, uh, I got to go first time. I was on a business trip. I spent a week there training with, with a company, and I remember I had to jump on the subway and go straight to the Twin Towers because I wanted to see them. It was a Sunday. It was in July. There was hardly anyone in lower Manhattan, and I was just standing there looking up, 
and look, I had no idea that they would be destroyed. This is the same thing. The disciples are looking at the temple and it does not dawn on them that Jesus is literally saying, no, it will be leveled to the ground. Gone. He prophesies not only of the temple's destruction, but of the city of Jerusalem's destruction. And like the fig tree that he cursed the day before, it's going to be sudden and catastrophic. In the same setting, Jesus goes on to prophesy there on the Mount of Olives. He prophesies of the last days of this earth. They really are last days. Some people don't believe that. It's coming. And he, promised, he prophesies of the last days of this earth and the outpouring of God's wrath that will take a place on the rebellion of the nations. And then he finally tells them about his return for his church, those who have put their faith and trust in him. And this teaching, I taught uh, seven weeks on it back in the fall, is known as the Olivet Discourse. And he gives that during the time of the week that he's being inspected as the Lamb. The following day, let's go another day forward. The following day, the Sanhedrin meets. They have a meeting. The Sanhedrin is the 71 religious rulers of Israel, led by the high priest, who at that time was Caiaphas. And they meet to plot the capture and the arrest and ultimately the death of Jesus. That whole meeting, the 71 leaders meet to say, he must be stopped. Because by the way, the, the very same day he flipped the temples and cleaned up the temple, he healed a bunch of people that day too. I'm be, I'm, I know they're glad he came that week, right? <laughs> if, you, if you got healed, you're like, I'm glad he came. But nevertheless, they plan his death. Judas, who was one of the 12, he actually comes to them secretly and expresses in that meeting that he's willing to betray Jesus. And they make him a deal to pay him 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus at just the right time. Later that day, the preparation for the Passover meal begins. And after sundown, the disciples are gathered with Jesus in a place called the upper room, which is just an upper room of one of the residential homes there in Jerusalem. And they begin to partake of the Passover meal together. Now remember, these Jewish men have been taking the Passover their whole life. They're very familiar with it. They know the lamb shank. They know the bitter herbs. They know the whole process of the Seder. The meal will come to be known to us as the Last Supper, also known as Communion. But it was the Passover meal, a full meal. Over the course of the meal... Jesus is reclining with them, fellowshipping with them, just spending time with them. They have no idea that he will be on the cross the following morning. But at the end of that meal, he takes a piece of the unleavened bread and he takes a cup of the wine, which they understood for years how it was corresponding to the Exodus. But he takes and says, this bread represents my body and this cup represents my blood. Now once Judas leaves, Judas exits the scene, he leaves the upper room, once Judas leaves, Jesus begins to do a teaching just for the remaining 11, because he knew Judas was false, so he does not start this teaching until Judas leaves. Judas leaves, then he begins 
teaching the disciples how they are to abide in him. What they're going to endure in their lifetime. And he tells them he's going to send what we now know as the Holy Spirit, the helper, the comforter, who's going to give them the power to live and is going to comfort them all through their lifetime. As they leave the upper room, they actually leave the Passover and they head to a place that they used to go frequently with Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus tells the disciples on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, tonight, every one of you will be scattered and all of you will stumble because of me. Peter hears this and declares, if every single one of these guys stumble, I will not. And he says, I'll even be willing to die for you. Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says, tonight, before the rooster crows in the morning, you will deny me three times. That's a prophecy that Jesus gives that's going to come to pass quickly. They go to the garden, Gethsemane, which is again, you come outside the city, you head east just down the slope through the Kidron Valley, right there at the base of the Mount of Olives. Uh, been there a couple of times. Beautiful place where it's all olive trees. And there in the garden, Jesus is in great agony in his spirit. And he's in such agony, and, and medical doctors say this is definitely possible, his capillaries burst, and he begins to sweat great drops of blood. And he prays to the Father, Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Isn't that the prayer we should be praying all the time? Your will, Father, your will. He's arrested shortly after. Judas does indeed betray him. Judas comes. The, the temple guards are with him. Uh, Jesus is immediately taken to the high priest's father-in-law's home in the middle of the night. He will eventually be led shortly after that to the high priest's home. And the high priest, of course, at that time was Caiaphas. And after numerous attempts at Caiaphas's home with the Sanhedrin, the 71 were gathered in the middle of the night after numerous attempts to frame Jesus to, to find him something that they could convict him of. They can't find anything. He continues to prove innocent and above reproach. They finally convict him of this one thing. They ask him, are you the Son of God? And he says, it is as you say. And with that, they said, this man has blasphemed God and deserves to die. At that point, Jesus is mocked. He's beaten. They spit in his face. And then, outside, in the courtyard, just before the rooster crows, Peter denies Jesus. How many a third time. And as soon as Peter denies him a third time, the sun's about to break, the rooster crows, and Jesus looks and looks right at Peter. By 6 a.m., Jesus is led to Pilate, who is the ruling leader of Rome in that area. Pilate can't find any fault in Jesus. And Pilate is not a nice guy. He's crucified many people. He does not care. He's pretty heartless. But something about Jesus, including his wife, has a dream, says, do not 
do anything to this innocent man. But Pilate struggles and says, I can't find any fault in this man. Pilate decides to send Jesus over to Herod, who is his counterpart up in the Galilean region, and Herod is in town for the Passover because it's a huge festival and the Roman leaders are there just in case anything ever goes wrong. So Herod is there and Herod has his own entourage of soldiers and Herod wants to see Jesus do a miracle but Jesus refuses to even speak. So Herod's soldiers mock Jesus and they put a purple robe on him and they send him back to Pilate. That day, the scriptures tell us that Herod and Pilate who were Rivals and enemies became good friends that day. You want to know how nations that didn't even like each other are becoming close? It's against God, even in our lifetime. Pilate then has Jesus beaten and scourged, whipped with a cat of nine tails, his back shredded, thinking that at least if he does this kind of punishment, the people will kind of say, all right, that's enough. You've buffeted him enough. But they, the people won't give an inch. Pilate then says, you know, you have a tradition. I can release one prisoner to you. How about I release to you the king of the Jews, Jesus? They're like, no, no, no. Give us this man Barabbas, who is a murderer. And they scream and cry out, give us Barabbas. And the, plea, uh, the priests and the crowds, they insist that Jesus must die. Pilate, who had condemned many, many people to crucifixion, he finally, against his own will, acquiesces because politicians do this. At the end of the day, it's all about holding position and power. So Pilate says, I don't even agree with this, but I'll let an innocent man be crucified. Pilate takes and washes his hands like that somehow absolves him of guilt, but he washes his hands and sends Jesus to his death. The soldiers, the Roman soldiers take him and they take him, lay him on the cross and they begin to drive thick spikes like railroad spikes into his hands and into his feet. Then they take a crown that has thorns about yay long and they drive it into his skull. They fix, they, actually it takes effort to make that crown but they were so bent on mocking him they make that crown then they drive it into his head and then they put an inscription just above his head in three different languages king of the Jews. By 9 a.m., remember he went before Pilate at 6 a.m., then went over to Herod, then back to Pilate. By 9 a.m., Jesus is hoisted up on the cross. Two thieves are also ready to be crucified, so they say, let's put them up on the same day. They put the two thieves on either side of Jesus. The people, they are mocking Jesus, they are cursing at him. Some are the same voices that earlier in the week were waving palm branches saying, Hosanna. Now they're mocking him, hurling insults. And they say, along with the leaders, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you get yourself off the cross? Show your power. But let me tell you, Jesus had already shown his power many times. He had healed people just that same week in the temple. Jesus had shown his power many times. He was hanging to show his love. One of the thieves, who had been insulting Jesus, both of them had it at the outset, 
starts to notice something. One of the thieves notices, this isn't like any other man. One of the thieves notices, this is unlike any man I've ever seen. And by faith, he just, now remember, when you're being crucified, you can hardly even breathe, much less speak. But he forces out of his mouth the only thing that he can think of, Lord, he immediately thinks Jesus has to be the Lord. Remember me when you come into the kingdom. Jesus turns and looks at him and says to him, Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. You will not be on this cross later this afternoon. You and me, we're going to be in a totally different place. Wow. On the cross. Jesus, draining out all the blood that he has, even there in this anguish, Jesus is giving life. And his death is still giving life right now in 2022. A lot of people are going to come to Jesus all over the world today because of his death. Today. I'm hoping someone here. At midday, right around 12 noon, all of a sudden, the skies turn black. And for the next three hours, darkness falls on the entire earth. This ought to be a really good sign to everybody we've made a huge mistake. Right? It's not an eclipse. Solar and lunar eclipses only last for a relatively short period of time. They do not last for three hours. So it cannot be an eclipse. It's the actual God darkens the earth. It's a foreshadow to darkness that will come in the Great Tribulation period as well. He's going to do it again. He did it in Egypt. He does it here. And he'll do it again in the end of days. Yes, it's true that no one can really take Jesus' life. He could have called 10,000 angels. Yes, it's true he laid down his life and let them nail him to the cross. But it's also true that humanity drove stakes into the Son of God's hands and feet and murdered the Son of God. We were all guilty of murder. All of us. Just like when Adam fell, we all fell with him. So the darkest moment of humanity is punctuated by darkness falling on the earth. Now, Satan and his demons, that only Jesus can see the unseen realm, I can guarantee you they are no doubt celebrating. You ever seen in Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan lays down and gives his life and all those weird creatures are dancing around? That's probably what the demonic realm looked like at this moment. But they were going to lose. Near the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just after he says that, he says these words, It is finished. And finally, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As soon as he says that, the earth starts to shake. This is another sign the earth went, the skies went black, but as soon as he said, Father, into your hand I come my spirit, the earth starts to rumble. And at that same time, over in the temple, Jesus is out, he's being crucified outside the city, over in the temple, the veil of the temple, which was massively thick, just rips right down the center. You can imagine one of the uh, temple priests running saying, you've got to see what's happening here. Jesus, at that time, gives up his 
spirit breathes his last breath and he's prepared for burial by Nicodemus who was a member of the Sanhedrin who spoke against the condemnation and Joseph Arimathea who gives up his own tomb the disciples are distraught Jesus is now dead they begin to embalm him and put the um, uh, spices and wrap him but amazingly at that same moment a centurion is convinced just like the thief that this really is God's son so you have one that's dying one that put all three of them on the cross and they are convinced this really is God's son isn't that amazing the love of God Peter at this time you can only imagine Peter is laden with guilt Peter feels horrible that he's denied Jesus. The women, all the women that followed, said many women followed Jesus and had been saved by him. Many had been cast off by society, but they are weeping. The disciples are reeling. Their teacher, their master, their deliverer is gone. Uh, he told them exactly that this would happen, but none of them understood. All they could see on this day was death and defeat, but actually death was being defeated. Amen. Amen. All they could see was death and defeat. Now Jesus, while they are reeling, while they are grieving, while they are weeping, Jesus is already very much alive. Amen? Yeah. His body's dead. His body is laid into that tomb. But he told the thief on the cross, you and me are going to be in paradise when? Today. So Jesus, his body is dead, but he is now standing in paradise. And I don't have time theologically to get into where paradise is because it's actually not heaven. Everyone will then move from paradise into heaven post-resurrection. But Jesus is in paradise along with the thief on the cross. Can you imagine Jesus welcoming the thief on the cross? I, a, a second ago, we were in Jerusalem on a cross. Now we're both standing here, and Jesus could say, well, I want you to meet Abraham. I want you to meet jo Joseph. I want you to meet Dick King David. How about John the Baptist, who had just been beheaded not too much before all of this? Now Jesus' body was lying in the tomb. And a detachment of Roman soldiers, Pilate, told the priest, all right, you think that there's this story that he's going to be resurrected? I'll give you your detachment of troops. If you have a detachment of Roman soldiers that are guarding the tomb, over the next couple of days, we can only imagine the grief of all the disciples. As a matter of fact, they have to wait out the Sabbath. You're not allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, they're all waiting for that first opportunity when the Sabbath breaks. They can run, especially the ladies, to the tomb and just be near the body, even if they can't see the body. But three days after the worst day comes the first day of the week. And it'll be a first day like no other has been or ever will be again. Because just before sunrise, we read the text, had come over the horizon, Jesus returns, the Spirit of God returns from paradise and He re-enters the body that's in the tomb. His breath returns. His life returns. God sends some angels from heaven down to the earth. And one of them, or both of them, or whatever, they roll the stone back. And as they arrive, the soldiers collapse in fear. And they don't just pass out. They stay out. I don't know how that happens. 
But they are out cold. The angels roll away the stone and Jesus walks straight out of the tomb. Very early in the morning, just before the sunrise, the Savior is risen. There's nobody there but Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the angels. There's nobody else there. There's not another human being there because every record shows when they got there, the tomb was already empty. To me, this is kind of very similar. The creation, it was only God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. At the regeneration, which is the resurrection, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are there. And as the sun is rising, some of the women, they go to the tomb just to grieve, just to bring spices. I don't know what they thought they were going to do. Rub it on the outside of the stone. But I've seen many people, when they're grieving over a loved one, just want to put flowers on the, on, the, on the gravestone, even if they can't do anything. They just want to be there. But they get there, and the stone is rolled back, and the tomb is empty. And to their shock, there's two shining angels there. Sometimes angels have come and not revealed their glory, but this time these angels are in shining white and light is emanating from them. They're in such grief. All this stuff kind of like, I don't know if they think they're in a dream or what, but one of the angels says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen as he said he would. So they hear this. And they run all the way back into the city, into Jerusalem. They tell the disciples. And of course the disciples believe them. No. These mighty men of faith dismiss them and assume that they're making the whole thing up. But then Peter and John hash it out and say, maybe we should go check it out. We are the senior leaders here. Maybe we should go check it out. And they run... And John outruns Peter and records that. <laughs> As you just saw, he really did record that he outran Peter. They're probably still talking about this. When you get there, you can talk to him about it. I tripped or whatever. <laughs> they run to the tomb and they find the tomb is empty. Even Jesus' face covering, Jesus had got up. For those of you that are not only early risers, but you make your bed immediately, he had folded the napkin in a perfect little square and put it there. The disciples, they go back to the city because they don't see Jesus. They don't see the body. They don't know what's happened. They're scratching their head. It doesn't make any sense to them why he's not there. But Mary Magdalene, she's the only one. Everybody else goes back in the city, but she does not. She lingers. And not just lingers, she weeps. Jesus had cast seven demons out of her. Jesus said, to whom much, who he's been delivered of much, will love much. She just stays there. She's the only one that stays back. She weeps. She's still perplexed. She then decides to look in the tomb herself. She looks in there. And this time, lo and behold, there's one angel sitting at Jesus where his feet were and one angel sitting where his head would have been. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. God sends these angels. They have on their mission list, you're going to tell one woman, why are you weeping? You're going to roll away a stone. You're going to greet them. 
One lady is, God's got all around it. One lady's going to, her name's Mary Magdalene. Lord, we know who she is. We've seen her, you know, all that stuff. So one's going to stay behind and you're going to go back in the tomb. One of you sit at the head. One of you sit at where the feet was. What I love about angels, they do exactly what God tells them to do. God wants you and I, if he tells you to sit here, he wants you to sit here, he wants me to sit here, we should do it. Amen? Amen. And they asked Mary, woman, which might seem a little rough, but just the terminology today would be like, ma'am. Ma'am, why are you weeping? She explains why. She tells them why, and she is trying to find this body of her Savior, her Master, her Rabbi, that's missing. And then she turns around, and now she's looking into the face of Jesus, and she doesn't recognize him. We don't know exactly why. We know he's in a glorified body. But he says to her the exact same question, the angel, woman, why are you weeping? She assumes Jesus is the gardener, most amazing gardener you've ever seen, right? You know, so she assumes he's the gardener in a glorified body. And again, this is tells you what grief can do to the mind. Jesus says one word, Mary. As soon as he says that word, all the lights come on. And she immediately knows it's Jesus. She says, Rabboni, which means teacher or rabbi. And she worships Jesus, even clings to him, it says. She doesn't want to let go. And she becomes the first person and will always be, for all eternity, the first person to see the risen Savior, other than the angels. She will forever be when you get to heaven, you meet Mary Magdalene, you were the first. The woman that God, Christ had cast seven demons out of her, she's the first person to see the risen Savior. Later that night, same, same first day of the week, later that night, Jesus appears, comes back to that upper room, and all the disciples are there except for Judas, who has now killed himself, committed suicide. Thomas is not there. We're not sure exactly why. But Jesus comes into that room and says, Peace be unto you. They had anything but peace up until this point. They were, they were, said they were there because they were afraid that they were going to be captured by the Jews and killed themselves. They were not in peace. They were in great grief and great turmoil. But Jesus says, peace unto you. And their grief was instantly replaced with gladness and only Jesus can do that for a human being. You can't buy it in a bottle. You can't buy it with money. Only Jesus can take grief and turn it into gladness. Amen? Peter, that night, he breathed a sigh of relief. Jesus had told him he was going to deny him three times, which he did. But Jesus also had said, I am going to pray for you that your faith will not fail. Peter was like, Whew. he was restored. He was forgiven. Maybe you've blown it in life. Maybe you've blown it this week. God is in the business of restoring and giving forgiveness. Amen? Amen. And this first day of the week becomes the first day of all eternity as they each become part of the resurrection as the Bible says that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection and we become part of his resurrection. 
because he is raised, we can be raised. And this becomes the first day of this week, but the first day of all eternity for them because Jesus has conquered sin, he's conquered death, and simple faith receives his grace. Amen? As I bring this to an end, and we're really right here at the end, each of the disciples, plus the women, they were also disciples, but I'm talking about the disciples who later become the 12 apostles. But the, all of them, the men and women together, they are all disciples in their, the upper room. But they personally, they saw the risen Savior. They already believed in Jesus. They just didn't know what had taken place. Then it all fully came together. Now we know what you were telling us all that time, that you were going to be crucified, betrayed, and you would rise the third day. He did exactly what he said. Just as his prophecy was right about Peter denying three times, it was also right about him raising after three days. But they believed, and they rejoiced. They became glad. They rejoiced in the risen Savior. Now I know there's people here. Maybe you got invited today. There's people online. Maybe they're watching online. There's people that are like, they're still not sure this whole thing is true. They're positive that George Washington existed, but they're not positive that Jesus really did come, live a sinless life, die, and rise three days later. I am more positive about Jesus than I am about George Washington. Even though I know both are factually and historically true. And the reason is, my faith and trust isn't in George Washington or in John F. Kennedy or anybody else, right? Jesus really came. And there's some people, I, we get, we're in a society that people are more and more becoming agnostics and atheists at a higher, higher percentage. And people, the whole thing's a myth. Look, everything that everyone believes in, they've gotten from somewhere on this earth. So I believe in this. Where'd you read it? I believe in this. Where'd you read it? I believe in this. Where'd you see it? It all came from human being. This is God-breathed word. His record of what happened. Either he's right or we're right. And I can guarantee we're not right. Amen. Amen. Amen? This is exactly what took place. And it's detailed in such finite detail that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this has taken place. And then we have the testimony of the last 2,000 years of many people's radically changed lives, mine included. I was telling the first service as we bring this to a close, um, you know, I, it, as far as an Easter service goes, uh, when we were living in South Florida, uh, just around the time it was Easter, uh, you guys heard my testimony before, but the, the, the gal who was cutting my hair, and he, she had a little Jesus fish on her necklace, and I'm like, oh no, here we go. And, uh, you know, I wasn't saved then. I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I'm like, she's cutting my hair, and I just knew she was going to invite me to church. I knew it was coming, and she did. She invited me to that Easter Sunday service, and we ended up going, but we didn't get saved until about four months after that. But the seeds were planted. Amen. Amen. I was telling the first service, Pastor Trevor, same thing when he came to one of our Christmas Eve services. I did a little seven-minute message. He didn't get saved that night, but about four months later, just like me, about four months later from Easter. And the reason is, this is not just a story. It is the supernatural gospel. Amen. Nothing like that ever changed me. Just the gospel of Jesus Christ. They personally believed. Now here's the thing. We know Jesus already, he is the risen Savior. 
The big question is, is he your risen Savior? Jesus is risen. It doesn't matter if an atheist says, I don't believe in Jesus. That doesn't change that he's risen. He is on the throne, whether anyone believes he's on the throne. But he becomes your Savior when you say, Lord, I believe in you. Would you please cleanse me? Peter had to be restored. He was saved, by the way. He just got kind of put back together. But to believe and say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. Then he becomes your personal risen Savior. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we are so grateful that not only you sent your Son, and not only did he submit to the will of the Father, he did not let the cup pass, but he drank from the cup of the death of crucifixion, of being mocked, beaten, spat upon. But Lord, in doing so, that shed blood, as you said in your word, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Lord, that shed blood is powerful enough to cleanse every sin that has ever been committed. And leave, even, Lord, it could cleanse the thief right there on the cross or the centurion right at the foot of the cross. And each of the disciples, Lord, and thousands, in fact, millions that have come to saving faith, that blood that was shed that day is still cleansing lives because it's supernatural. Because it was ordained by you. Jesus, we are so grateful that the tomb is empty. But Lord, our hearts are not empty. Because of the empty grave, you've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us the assurance of salvation. You've given us your grace. You've given us forgiveness. So Lord, the empty tomb has since then saved many empty hearts. And Lord, even this morning, if there's even one, as I mentioned earlier, Lord, if there's just one that never heard this story, or maybe they've heard it a hundred times, but they've never really put their faith and trust in you. Not even sure it's really true. Lord, I pray that you, I can't convince a person this is true, but you have convinced millions it's true. And Lord, I pray that you convince even one that the Lord doesn't know or doesn't believe in, that they would call upon your name to cleanse them and be saved from the judgment to come, Lord, and anyone online. And as your heads are bowed, as we just bring this to a close, if there's even one here today, I, I, I was once in that same place. I was like, I don't know. Then I, then I knew it was true, but I didn't want to give up what I was doing. I, I had some more parties I wanted to attend to. I, want, I had some more fun I still wanted to have. And God's like, you're not going to miss any of that. Once you get eternal life, those things aren't going to matter. If there's even one, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If there's even one, say... The Lord has convinced me today that this is true and I need Jesus and I need his salvation and I need to be cleansed from my sins. I can't work for it. I can't earn it, but I can receive it. If there's even one, just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. I'm not trying to guilt anyone. That, the good news, I don't have to worry. The Holy Spirit has all the weight on his shoulders. Anyone at all, just one. Just raise your hand. I see that hand. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? I know God's speaking. I know it. I, I was in here yesterday, prayed over every single chair in here. So if you're sitting in one, it got prayed over. Every single one. Anyone else? Before we, you know, I see that hand. Yeah.
Anyone else? Just, again, I'm not trying to belabor it. Your soul is way more important than lunch. Anyone else? Some people call them the third, fourth. Dr. Billy Graham, I think years ago, he came like the third or fourth altar call. Anyone else? We serve a risen Savior, and He loves to forgive sins. He would rather forgive your sins more than you want them forgiven. That's the great news. I'm going to pray with these two. If there's anyone else, raise your hand if you want to join them. Just don't let Satan talk you out of it. He's always trying to deceive people right into hell. Listen to Jesus. He's the one that died for you and me. Satan would never die for you. He wants you to die. Jesus died for us. Anyone else at all? I see that hand. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, the, the battle is, in this world is for souls. It's not for political power. It's not for money. It's always for souls. Satan will give you all the money in the world if you'll go to hell. He'd be glad to give you anything you want to forego eternity. The battle is always for soul. Anyone else? I would close it, but each time there's been someone else. So, Anyone else? You can get saved later today. You don't need me. The Holy Spirit is in the business of saving people when he does the work. But at the same time, if you're close and God is saying, why put it off? Don't put it off. Anyone else? I've seen these three hands. Is there anyone else? With our heads bowed, I want to pray for these three, these three ladies. God sees you. Maybe it's a rededication for one of you. Maybe it's salvation. But I tell you what, if you are sincere, God will save you to the uttermost today. You don't have to be resaved or anything like that. Just, you can use your own words, but you can pray in your heart. Follow after me. Just speak to God through the person of Jesus. Just speak these words. Lord Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to cleanse me and to forgive me and to wash me and to save me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name now in the Lamb's book of life. For I am Choosing to believe in you, to believe on you for my salvation. I'm choosing to leave my life behind and follow you, Jesus, for the rest of my life. In your name I pray. Amen.